everyone, I'm Riyad Akyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dignified Resilience. Here we are, first episode in 2021. And has it not been eventful, at least surely for us who are based in the United States. Um, Anyway, I hope that you are all well today and I wish you health and a new year of ease and peace. Seek it internally. That's what I try to do. um, If there are things externally that we cannot um, affect, I am so excited about my guest today, really. Um, my guest today is Elmira Bayraslu, uh, someone whom I, I admired for so long, and we have been trying to get together even before pandemic for quite a while, but things would never work out. But uh, she, she's someone whom I admired for quite a while online, and we've had this idea, idea of getting together. So now uh, the timing uh, came out perfectly. And uh, before I welcome her, I want to introduce uh, Elmira Bayrasa to our listeners and viewers. She's the author of the book, From the Other Side of the World, Extraordinary Entrepreneurs at Unlikely Places, a book that looks at the rise of entrepreneurship globally. And she's also the CEO and co-founder of Foreign Policy Interrupted and a professor at Bard College's Global International Affairs Program. I think she's actually a director at this point. She can tell us more about it. Um, And uh, she has lived in Sarajevo, Bosnia and Herzegovina, so I have a special, (laughs) special appreciation for Elmira. Uh, She has worked for, she was the chief spokesperson for the OSCE department. Uh, From 94 to 2000, she was presidential appointee at the U.S. Senate Department, working for Madeleine Albright and Richard Holbrook, respectively. Elmira also provides analysis on foreign policy, particularly on Turkey. So that's another connection that uh, we have. And uh, her work has appeared in Reuters, Foreign Affairs, Washington Post, Quartz, New Republic, Fortune, Forbes, CNN. I don't want to make this list short because it's long. And uh, so it's uh, New York Times, NPR, BBC, Al Jazeera, The Wall Street Journal. And she sits on several boards, including Invest to Innovate Our Secure Future, Turkish Philanthropy Funds, and Turkish Women in international network. There you have it. I mean, <laughs> I'm so grateful. I'm so honored. I am. It's my great pleasure to have her as my first guest in 2021. Let's start this year uh, right. And there's so many topics that I, I would love and can't wait to ask Elmira. So welcome. Um, how are you today? And it's so good to have you on. Well, thank you so much, Riada. I'm so happy to be here. Happy New Year to all of your listeners. Um, what a what a lovely introduction. Um, I'm a huge fan of yours, and it's such an honor to be on on this show with you. 
That's so uh, that's so kind of you. And uh, there's so many topics that I want to ask you. So let's dive in. Obviously, first, um, and we have a global global you know viewership and listen, listeners from all over the world. But let me ask you, considering the recent and most recent events in Washington D.C. here, is there anything that you would like to share in terms of your thoughts uh, considering the situation right now and how you hope it enrolls? in the next two weeks and even afterwards, what are your thoughts considering you are, I believe, based in New York City? I am based in New York City. It's where I grew up. I was born in Brooklyn and I grew up here, um, even though my parents are immigrants from Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I think it's hard not to talk about mm-hmm. what happened on the Capitol on January 6th. Um, and it's not just because a bunch of people you know, mobbed and broke their way into the Capitol and desecrated it and, you know, threatened, you know, not only the building, its artifacts, but the people there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it really will stand out. I think we'll see that it will stand out in history because of what that mob um, and those violent individuals represented, which is, you know, rule by, you know, rule by force. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very frightening on a number of different levels. Mm-hmm. And I put out a newsletter every week. Mm-hmm. And in Friday's newsletter, I basically said, you know, this is what happened in Washington didn't just happen to Americans. Mm-hmm. I think everyone in the world should be afraid of what took place because what was, what's at stake is democracy. Mm-hmm. And for such a long time, the United States has been the beacon and the protector of opportunity and freedom and progress all, all around the world. And I think that when you do have a set of individuals who want to take that away in what is supposedly the superpower of the world, I think that should concern a lot of people. I think the United States has long been a role model for other nations. And the United States has been able to use that soft power to influence countries to actually behave better. And I think after last Wednesday, but then also more importantly, after the past four years under the leadership of Donald Trump, I think the United States has a harder time making that case. Yeah, and of course, this once again reminds us of something that not a lot of people unfortunately still want to recognize and acknowledge and first that's also the really really real threat of the right-wing white supremacism as a maybe even greatest threat terrorist threat to the united states and as you mentioned i read um timothy snyder who is an author and who wrote a book on tyranny he wrote very long and maybe you've also read an article in new york times this past week and he was talking about basically just a couple of sentences that i truly liked he said america will not survive the big lie just because a liar is separated from power it will it will need a thoughtful repluralization of media commitment to facts as a public good. And then he continues in saying uh, the racism structured into every aspect of the coup attempt is a call to heed our own history. Serious attention to the past helps us to see risks, but also suggest future possibility. We cannot be a democratic republic if we tell lies about race, big or small. Democracy is not about minimizing the vote nor ignoring it, neither a matter of gaming nor of breaking a system, but of accepting the equality of others, heeding their 
voices and counting their votes. I mean, um, it kind of agrees absolutely with what you said and uh, the danger that I hope now everybody also realizes is not exceptional to the Balkans or to the Middle East or those countries over there, as we have heard in the media that, as you also wrote in the uh, newsletter, this is America, right? It, I mean, most definitely is America. I think I have a couple of thoughts on that. One, you know, even though America has projected this idealistic image and being a beacon of democratic freedoms and values, the reality of America is that it was founded on on racism and marginalization. I mean, we have to remember that slavery was very much part of America's founding, and it was then enshrined into the elections, which is how we got the electoral college system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think that that's one element of it. You know, America definitely the reality of America is is it's ugly. And I think that we do need to embrace that. I think, you know, I'm all for living up to that ideal, but I think that we need to actually stare the reality in the face because if we don't, then it's impossible for us to change it. I think the second thing that I want to respond with is all of those things that Timothy Snyder pointed out, you know, very much underpin democracy. But I think the thing that is very inherent, it's that it's about community. And it's not just about individuals going out there and voting and upholding the rule of law, but it's all about everybody buying into a collective understanding and a collective good, right? So if my, I can't have my own vision of what democracy is, because this is exactly what perpetuated the mass riot and then insurrection on the Capitol on January 6th. It is this individual definition of what it is. No, we need to have a collective definition of what that is. And we need to have a community and an understanding that we are all connected. And so I think one of the things that we've seen, not just in the last four years, and I will date this before Trump, I think the United States has been leading up to this point for a very long time. You saw it, you know, definitely the seeds in Reagan's America back in the 1980s. But if you really want to understand how we got to this very bitter by, you know, bitter partisanship and this polarization, you really need to look to Newt Gingrich. You know, he was elected in the early 1980s, and then he came to power in the 1990s with this vile, corrupt, you know, ruthless way of politicking that was all about tearing down the Democrats. And he shaped the modern Republican Party. And he is very much the father of that. And it is what it is, you know, you, you, you sow the seeds and this is what we're reaping today. And he very much, it's not only this vile, you know, approach to politics, but it's also this, I'm in it for myself. And I don't care about my neighbor. And I don't care about the person who is opposing me or who has different political views, or I don't care about whoever is living on the other side of the city or of the country, what is good for me? And the problem with that is that that may be okay for a day or for a year, but it does become problematic for a longer period of time. It's unsustainable. And so we really need to get back to working together and understanding that 
we live in neighborhoods and communities and with people who want all want the same things. And maybe those things are very different, but we really need to throw out this vile, corrupt, Newt Gingrich, Donald Trumpian way of, of doing things. And that leads me perfectly to my next question, which was, I mean, if we think that if we think then about 2020 and everything that it brought additionally in terms of COVID-19 global pandemic, the the amount of suffering and the inequalities that it just kind of brought more to the surface, to the face of many people around the world in terms of injustices, um, et cetera, a lot of sources, a lot of people, a lot of magazines have kind of dubbed it as the year when everything changed. But then at the same time, I saw a lot of um, titles saying, well, yes, fortunately, I mean, it's the year that everything changed, but that also is an opportunity that points a way forward. So um, if yes, tell me in which ways do you think it will move forward? Is it questionable and insecure? Or is it naive to also think that things after 2020, which is kind of like a milestone, but I don't even think, I mean, even in terms of vaccine, I think 2021 is still going to be kind of a deja vu of sorts, but we'll get to that. You know, I want to believe that. Um, I think I'm an optimist at heart. (laughs) I think my gut tells me that that might not happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the problems that we see in the United States, but then also around the world are really Mm -hmm. entrenched and they have very long roots. And I don't know if you can actually really change that, you know, just because of, of, of a pandemic. I certainly think that we're going to approach global health issues in a much different way. And that is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to be much more conscientious of that and how we take care of ourselves, but then also how we take care of our societies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good news for global health, but then also connected to that, I think it's good news for climate change. Um, because I think a lot of you know, at least what I have read is the global pandemic is very much a result of climate change, um, you know, and humans interacting much more with, with wild species mm-hmm. um, and, and, and that. And so I think, you know, definitely we can always be optimistic and, and look at the positive. Mm-hmm. I, do, I do also want to be realistic mm-hmm. because not only what I've seen happening in the United States, not just over the past four years, but as, as I said, over the past several decades, mm-hmm. is very troublesome. But then you also have the rise of countries like Russia and China mm-hmm. and a lot of emerging market countries that, you know, previously, you know, throughout the 20th century, they were, you know, categorized as the third world. Uh And so they were poor and they were underdeveloped and they really depended on either the Soviet Union or on the United States. And now these countries are economically advanced and they have vibrant societies. And along with that has come a lot of nationalism, um, which is a negative part of it. You know, you see it in China. You definitely see it in Russia. I've seen it in Turkey where you have a lot of people who don't want to join the EU, who are very anti-Western and who Mm -hmm. think, you know, Turks, you know, we made it, nobody wanted us and we made it, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're going to have our allegiance to a leader who has frankly grown more authoritarian as years have gone by and democratic freedoms have 
decreased in Turkey. And so I think rising nationalism is something that does worry me. And I don't think that that's going to change overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there is always a difference between optimism and having kind of what does hope actually mean? You know, like I'm pessimist, but I've learned from a lot of things in the past year and um kind of spiritual grounding most of all honestly that uh, optimism does not just have to mean you know oh now I just believe things are going to get better but I'm not going to do anything about it or no I'm going to look up to people who are cautiously hopeful I guess and hope means action as well Um, in order to be optimist you're going to get involved and uh, whatever it is that that pains your soul Um, and so I think that as a pessimist by nature, I believe that I'm learning what, how to be hopeful. And that means optimistic because of the action that we put in and the efforts that we put in or looking up to people who are doing it. So fingers crossed that the optimists end up winning. Uh, but um, as long as we keep on talking and working, I think that that's, that's what really, really matters. So that said, if we think about changes, have you been in the New York, in New York City the whole time? And I'm asking this out of curiosity because are you in the camp of those people who believe that cities will struggle, but the mass exodus that maybe happened in the first months of pandemic will not change the nature of the city life? Or do you think that it's never going to be the same again? You know, all of those, you know, people decrying New York is dead, um, go home, get out. <laughs> My God, I grew up in New York. I grew up in the New York in the 1970s and 1980s when New York was a hellhole. Uh-huh. I mean, you think the subways are bad now? The subways were full of trash and graffiti. It was unsafe. You know, everything in New York, it was just, it was awful. Mm. Um, and still people came here and they came here for so many more reasons than you know, it, it being, you know, a place of finance or retail or, or media. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, New York has always been the first port of call for any immigrant in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have all sorts of creative types here. I mean, and I, one thing that stands out for me is especially in the 1980s, again, in the nadir of, of New York City, is you had this vibrant art you know, and music scene in New York City, mm. Madonna and Andy Warhol and John Basquiat and, um, you, know, you know, and yeah, and it's like, it was just this vibrant scene. And mm-hmm. the thing about New York is that it's a place that people want to come to because they can be themselves. Mm. Um, and I think immigrants love being here because they can continue to speak their language and practice their culture and their religion. And it's, it's just a place that really accepts everybody for who they are. And so I was here in New York City throughout the entire pandemic. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. first time that I have not gone anywhere, mm-hmm. um, I think since I was a teenager. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I have not, I have not left New York City at all. But, you know, I think, you know, again, what kept me going was, you know, interacting with these people once the museums were open, you know, going to the museums, you know, going out to the park to listen to classical music and to jazz music. I mean, there were still things going on because that's who New Yorkers are, Mm -hmm. you know, and this concept that the city is going to change and people are going to flock. You know, people 
who want to leave are going to leave. And those are going to be the people that never really appreciated things that New York had to offer. Maybe they enjoyed the fancy restaurants and shopping at Prada on Madison Avenue. But for most New Yorkers, those things are not realistic. I mean, they're not realistic for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, people like me will always be in New York. And I think New York will only continue to grow and thrive. You know what? I'm in the background of what you were saying. I was listening Alicia Keys and Jay-Z. The New York. (laughs) But uh, on the other side, I mean, I lived in New York City for a year, both in Queens and Manhattan. uh, And I love the city and I have family there. Now, both of my sisters live in New York City. And but I do want to plug in like a a, a piece of appreciation for another city, D.C. right now. And we're beyond Istanbul uh, in terms of what I was just referring to our immediate settings right now in terms of when you spoke about cultural scene. I really want to add two things. I don't know if I will have an opportunity. I haven't so far. First, a reminder that DC is not just what you see in terms of CNN, Capitol Hill, Senate, et cetera. It really is a place where people live and where they work. It's also home. So it's also scary for those of us who live here in terms of what happens 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 15 minutes away. But uh, that DC, again, has a beautifully vibrant cultural scene. It's a wonderful city. And a lot of just international cosmopolitan uh, setting that I hope kind of revitalizes. And I do believe a little bit like you say, uh, regardless of which city it is, that after the pandemic, I can't even say it's over because I can't even imagine how that would look like at this point, that there will always be this busting energy in, in the cities that that will kind of just make the city life maybe a little bit different, but still transformed, but that it will not be the end of cities or some sort of apocalypse like that. I hope so. I, I've, I've always been a city girl, but I do. Before, are here to stay. But before we get back to politics, I do want to say that this pandemic has truly made me think and appreciate nature more and do it consciously in a way that I wasn't doing before. And I don't want to say I was taking it for granted, but that now I really, really, truly understand that we need to take care of nature, that it's important for our well-being, that it's not just something granted out there and that, you know, all the people who speak about climate change, et cetera. No, nature really matters for our well-being. And I hope that a lot of people, anybody who's listening, sometimes I rant about it on Twitter, that they do explore their relationship with nature or spend more time because it's so good for uh, mental health as well. Oh, I live right across the street from Prospect Park and I am thankful and grateful every single day because I think the park really is a place where I can clear my mind. It's where I get ideas. Um, You know, when I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling nervous, I just, you know, put on my, you know, running shoes Mm -hmm. and I go out there, you know, even if it's just a 10, 15 minute walk and it calms me down. And there's something about being, you know, among the trees and not looking at buildings and looking at the big blue sky that really, it makes a difference. Or doom scrolling, you know, Twitter messages. No, or no, I don't. Yeah, do, oh my no, god! Do oh wow! So yeah, you know, uh, one of the reasons, fun reasons why I like end of the year best of lists uh, is also because I enjoy reading the different lists that predict stuff. 
uh, of like, oh, these are the 10 trends in politics or global events that we'll see next year. And then I like to, I don't know, I'm weird like that compared to who get who got what right from last year's predictions. But I did want to ask you, considering your expertise in international relations as well, and this is just a short list of um, economies, the Economist magazine, they published this thing, the world in 2020, 2021, et cetera, at the end of each year. And they, this is a list of the trends that I, some of the trends that they described in politics. And I was curious if any of this that I will read now and listeners and viewers can check it out more online rings a bell in terms of, oh yeah, that totally, I, I can see that is going to be the thing or that uh, kind of um, makes the most sense to you. And these are the trends that they described. First, they said it will be fights over vaccines as one trend in politics. Two, they said mixed economic recovery. Three, patching up the new world disorder. So it's funny that they were saying not new world order. They were like patching up the new world disorder. Four, they were saying more US-China tensions. Five, um, companies on the front line. Basically, business becomes even more of a geopolitical battlefield. Um, six, th there's going to be still a new tech acceleration. Um, seven, a less footloose world. The tourism will shrink globally. That will get more of domestic tourism, I guess. Eight, an opportunity on climate change. I think like what you mentioned a little bit. Nine, the year of deja vu, meaning that it's still, we're going to see a resonance of 2020, still in 2021 in many ways. And then a 10, a wake up call for other risks. Look at you. You also said it. They were talking about antibiotic resistance, uh, for example, or new things about health that we might look differently. And they talked about that this is maybe a wake up call for other risks like nuclear terrorism more seriously. So I know it's 10, but if, is there anything that kind of uh, does the list seem okay or reasonable to you? Is there one or two particular that you were like, this is really what we need to pay attention to? How does it seem? Well, I mean, it's also, I just feel like what's not on the list and what's not oh, on well. the list is- <laughs> This is just one list, a list, but yeah. Right, but I mean, when you take a look at this, it's like, it makes me question like who makes these lists because the list doesn't mention women at all. Um, and oh, we'll get to that. You know, and, and women's movement that, you know, we saw in 2017, the rise of Me Too, but then also what happened mm -hmm. in the United States, you know, this past year with the murder of George Floyd and the rise of Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and the racial justice movement. Um, you know, I think that we need to continue to pay attention to those things and they are interconnected mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. what they really point to is the rise of marginalized voices mm -hmm. and how are they you know, I think one of the things that, that we have to look out for in 2021 is how do these voices interact with those that are vying to continue to hold on to power, which is white men. And so a lot of what we also saw, I'm talking going back to, you know, the the riot in on Capitol Hill on January 6th, you know, a lot of those people were white men. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's coincidental that they are angry and they feel like they're losing their power in the face of more women becoming, you know, more prominent and taking more positions, but then also, you know, finally giving justice to, you know, Black Americans in this country and the rise of Latin Americans and the influence that they have. And I think that we need, I think what should be number one on that list is actually people. Um, you know, I think, yes, the tech sector will continue to grow and I think people will fight over the vaccine, but, you know, what are we talking about and how are we looking at our societies and what direction are they going in? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. So let's speak about women then. Um, you know, I, I as I said in the beginning, and I want to repeat, Elmira is so good at so many things that she does. And, you know, luckily, then luckily, not luckily, but there are, those are also topics that I'm interested in. So it's really an honor and a pleasure to have you on and be able to ask your opinions uh, about uh, all these things. So that said, of course, let's explain more to our listeners and viewers a bit more about Foreign Policy Interrupted, first of all, uh, why it exists and um, how has it been going since its inception? Yeah, thank you. Um, of course, I love it. For, thank you. Um, Foreign Policy Interrupted really started as a passion project back in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talking to a friend of mine, um, you know, talking about, you know, constantly everybody's having these conversations about where are the women and looking at panels at think tanks or, mm-hmm. you know, universities where they have manals and they, you know, and you ask them, why didn't they, you know, invite a woman? And they say, oh, well, we don't know any women who are experts in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so foreign policy really interrupted, really grew out of a desire to prove the naysayers wrong, to prove all those people that said, we don't know any women in that. It's just like, okay, well, I do. I know women who do that. So you can ask me. Um, but then also provide a community and a place for women who are doing the work to come together. And so I publish a weekly newsletter that highlights the week's events, not women's issues, even though sometimes, you know, that happens and we we cover that. But, you know, if if the dominant story is about, you know, the riot on the Capitol or the Iran nuclear deal or the vaccine or, you know, COVID happening, breaking out in China, my newsletter highlights the expertise of women thinking about, you know, those particular issues. Mm-hmm. And it has grown in popularity primarily because I don't dumb it down <laughs> and I highlight the women who are having a voice and a say on it and really showcasing the talent that there is. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to say since 2014, I think we've seen a real, you know, drop in the mantles and, you know, the, the excuses. And I, I don't, I do not, I do not think I single-handedly am responsible for that. I think the wonderful thing about whether it's foreign policy interrupted or my newsletter is that it's also inspired other women to be conscious of it. And so the rise of different organizations, which I wholeheartedly support, you know, different actors taking on the mantle of, you know, women's empowerment, and then also just believing in one another, you know, I think that for a long time, women were made to be enemies with one another because there was a finite set of seats that we could have. And what I'm so happy to see is that I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight with my fellow woman anymore. If I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight with a man, and I'm going to prove that. You know, whether it's the Supreme Court where Ruth Bader Ginsburg said you know, how many justice, how many women should be on the Supreme Court? And she said nine, you know, you know, having an all-female team or having more women than it is, we're not a quota. We're not a set of check boxes. We're people who are passionate. I mean, I look at you and the tremendous work that you do and women like you, and we need to hear from you so much more. And the contributions that you make are not just, you know, window dressing. They actually can save lives. 
and they can actually find solutions to problems that we're having today. And that's why it's profoundly important. And I really have to say, thank you so much for the kind words. It goes absolutely vice versa. And I do want to uh, really mention that Interrupted, uh, it's one of my favorite uh, really newsletters. And I say this, and I told you that in the email a couple of months ago, unrelated to this podcast, I think, or I wrote it, but um, it's so informative. I learn so much each time, but it also never fails to make me smile, uh, you know, somehow. Big. And, and when you mentioned now, two minutes ago, about who makes this list, I swear your newsletter made me think about the people who create newsletters, because I know you created. So that also to me, because I know you and the newsletter beams with both authenticity and of course, serious information. Um, I think about, it makes me think about another newsletter when I get it and I don't like it for some reason, or I find it just, I, I think about newsletters, honestly, because of yours. And so I said it once on Twitter, I really uh, invite uh, and warmly recommend um, to everybody to, to re- sub, to subscribe because this is work. I mean, to collect so much information and knowledge and I go through lists and I'm just like, wow. And as you say, those are women uh, who are experts in all this stuff. And that to see it like that as kind of an avalanche uh, is so good, but uh, it needs to just uh, hopefully get to more people. So that was just me praising it because it's, and and it's free still, I believe, and I right? It's free. I'm thinking so, about moving it to Substack and charging, but I haven't done that yet. <laughs> everybody's going to no, Substack. I heard, people, I heard people make money from that. And I'm like, I should make money. I, yeah, um, I'm just well, learning about those stuff and it's incredible, but it's it's an incredible privilege to be able to access such source for free, honestly. Rather I have than- a lot of fun doing it. I have to say, um, I think what comes through is how much I enjoy doing it. And so like, I have fun doing it. Um, and I like being funny and sassy and sarcastic. Um, so I really enjoy it. I really, I have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, as I said, I think the authenticity is something that cannot be faked and it comes out. But all of this intro, it was a good intro to kind of the newest or recent related info that I found while preparing for this episode and still kind of depressing to learn about, you know, gender equality, but also about women and leadership in the news media, particularly. And please tell me your thoughts on these findings below. I'm referring to report women and leadership in the news media 2020 evidence from 10 markets. It was published in March 2020. So a couple of months ago or almost a year ago, I guess, but still very relevant. It was published by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at University of Oxford, in which the authors analyzed the gender breakdown of top editors in a strategic sample of 200 major online and offline news outlets in 10 different markets across four continents. Looking at sample of 10 top online news outlets, uh, and this is what they found, Based on the data set, 23% of the 162 top editors across 200 brands covered are women. This is substantially below the line of average 40% of journalists in the 10 markets who are women. So there are journalists, 40%, but it's 23% who are kind of um, at the top or who are editors. So looking more broadly at gender inequality in society and the percentage of women in top editorial positions, they didn't find meaningful uh, correlations in the sense that countries like Germany and South Korea that score well on the UN gender inequality index have very few women among the top editors. 
still. So all 10 markets have a majority of men among the top editors. Um, before I ask you about missing perspectives of women in COVID-19 news, I wanted to ask you your thoughts about this idea and, I mean, lack and fact of women and leadership in the news media in, in last year. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. And it's, you know, I think it's something that I have been aware of. Um, I have conducted my own studies about, you know, the gender breakdown on the op-ed page in particular, Mm -hmm. and who's writing national security and foreign policy Mm -hmm. op-eds, you know, and still to this day, it's, you know, 75, you know, 75 to 80% of the op-eds are still being written by men. Um, and women, when women are writing those pieces, they're writing about, they tend to write about women's issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that in the top positions that you still see a dearth of, of women. I think, look, I think we talk about quota systems and we talk about, you know, where women are underrepresented. And I think the media needs to be a place where we shed more light mm-hmm. and, I mean, I think there, I have two thoughts on this. One, I think the media business is, is hard for a woman to begin with, which I don't think the media business needs to change. But I think what we need to do is we need to change the way that we are treating women and looking at women. You know, women are still considered the primary caregivers. You know, they take care of the kids, they take care of the family, and we need to restructure that. Um, women are not the only people who, who, who make babies, right? It takes two to do that. (laughs) And so, you know, like where, where's the father? Like, you know, the father is having this child equally as much as the mother does. Um, why are we not putting the onus on, on him and where are his responsibilities? So I think that that's one element of it because the, you know, I think having a, a journalism job is grueling, right? You need, it's unpredictable hours. It's long hours. You may need to be away, you know, and again, if the, if the undue burden of home life falls on a woman, that makes it hard for a woman to actually get, get into those positions and then rise, rise to the top. Mm-hmm. But I think the second thing is the ownership of media companies is largely male. It's largely white men, and they end up picking editors um, and senior people to operate their newsrooms you know, people who are in those networks, in their own personal networks, or who come recommended from within their networks, and they're not tapping on women. And so we need a different approach for how these media companies who are owned by men, how are they recruiting and then appointing people at the top there? Um, Because it's still an old boys network, and we need to break that up. And it matters. And it matters for this reason. When you take a look at how Hillary Clinton was covered in 2016, it is unquestionably sexist. She was treated so unfairly and her gender was put under a microscope. And she was questioned primarily by very powerful men in these media organizations. And here I'm looking at Matt Lauer at NBC and Charlie Rose, um, you know, and Donnie Joich and all of these individuals who have tremendous influence in the media world, and we need to start actually reducing it. And so, you know, one of the great things that happened in the Me Too movement is actually exposing how toxic these men are and how they actually don't care about not only their staff, but that how they don't care about women. And we need to start getting people who actually care about women and actually care about having a 360 perspective within their media organizations, because what we're getting right now 
is a very small glimpse of the world and we're looking at the world through a peephole and we need to stop it. Yeah, and that's exactly leading me. I was going to ask you about um, what do you think about the absence of women's perspective in COVID-19 related news coverage? And I, when I asked this and I want to also offer information based on research to our listeners and viewers as well. And I'm referring here to, again, a report entitled The Missing Perspectives of Women in COVID-19 News, a special report on women's underrepresentation published in September 2020, uh, commissioned by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And it examines women's representation in COVID-19 news gathering and news coverage in India, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, the UK, and the US. And the report has uncovered a substantial bias towards men's perspective in the news gathering and news coverage of this pandemic across uh, countries like UK and US and then India, Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. So um, as is is stated in the report, this bias operates, I quote, against the backdrop of women's effective political invisibility within the COVID-19 related decision-making process in the countries analyzed and the unique socioeconomic health and psychological challenges that women face globally. So there's both a country perspective and then the challenges that are that women face globally, but there is absolutely proven um, absence of women's perspectives in the COVID-19 related news as well. I think that's just one manifestation, I guess, because now we're talking about global pandemic, but it ties into what you talked about a little bit are now um, in terms of re- um, global and kind of macro trends, right? Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, this is why it's very important to actually have, you know, not only women, but different perspectives putting, you know, putting these this information together, whether it's in the media or whether it's in an academic setting, um, whether you're doing this type of research, because again, you only know what you see that's in front of you. And you can't see, you can't possibly see everything. And so the importance of actually having the diversity isn't because we all, you know, we all want to feel good. It's because we want to have accurate information. Mm -hmm. And unless we actually do that, and we actually are tapping into that and looking at how our different perspectives, how is COVID impacting women, or how is it impacting minorities? How is it impacting the LGBTQ community? You know, we really need to actually have the the perspectives of all of these individuals in order to be able to address it. Again, going back to the point I made earlier, you know, all of these individuals are going to help solve the problems that we have, you know, and it's really vital that we start actually tapping on their shoulders and inviting them in and to be at the table in order for us to actually address these issues. The more that we continue to just keep doing business as usual, the more we're going to actually go down a road where we're going to not only not solve the problems of today, but we're going to exacerbate further problems, you know, moving, moving down the road. And I think we're seeing that if we think about industries beyond journalism as well, and I do again want to clarify and remind our listeners, for example, uh, downturns usually tend to reduce gender inequality in the sense that not under COVID-19, but women's unemployment has risen uh, more than men's. And we get in the US, for example, in women started 2020, okay-ish from what I have read, but then women were holding 50.03% of jobs, but they ended 2020 or it ended in holding 
860,000 fewer jobs than their male peers. And on January 8th, meaning last Friday, few day, three days ago, four days ago, actually new data that was published by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics in the U.S. and articles that were published confirmed that the U.S. economy lost 140,000 jobs in December. All of them were held by women. So women who endured the first female recession in the U.S. history, as um, it has been dubbed, and they have still only regained 44.6% of the 12.1 million jobs that they lost between February and April. So, I mean, of course, in the United States, if we speak specifically about these countries, we see from reports that Latinas and Black women have continued to struggle the most to um, re-enter the job where they have lost the jobs the most. So even though men lost jobs, of course, taken as a group from everything that the latest reports show, men gained more jobs than they lost and women lost more jobs than they gained. So this is yet another fact about manifestation of just gender inequality. And I want to ask you, there are different explanations for why this has happened in, in, during the pandemic now. One explanation that I've seen is that women are more likely to work in services that mean interacting with people and that because of the pandemic they had to cut down the other the other explanation was that it was as confirmed hospitality education and government which were the fields with the largest job losses and all of them are fields where women work much more so restaurants and bars cut the most jobs by far, et cetera, et cetera. And again, from reports, I do want to mention that Latinas currently have the highest unemployment rate of 9.1% in United States, followed by Black women is 8.4% from reports, and white women 5.7% based on these reports. Anyway, what are your thoughts on this idea of the fact that we are seeing a female recession uh, for the first time, and that's not usually how it happens during financial crisis? Well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things, again, you know, going back to who takes care of the family, I mean, you know, COVID forced schools to close and families got, you know, families got relegated to all being shut and locked down at home. Mm -hmm. And so you have kids who are trying to learn and log on um, to access school on a computer um, you know, while the parents are working. Um, and the reality is anybody who has children, you know, under the age of 10 knows that no matter how independent your kids are, they still need moral support. They still need guidance. They're kids, right? They need, they need direction. And I think a lot of the burden fell on, on women. Um, you know, I personally have, you know, a number of friends who, you know, both couples are working, both the man and the woman. And, you know, the women scaled back. They either said, you know, I can't, I got to take a leave of absence or, you know, I can't work anymore because I really need to be there for my children. Um, Their education is important, you know, and this gets to a number of issues. And again, it's about, you know, family care and how are we, how are we addressing that as a society? And so how are we, you know, are we giving adequate maternity leave? Are we giving paternity leave? Um, how, how do families access childcare? Um, how can we make that affordable? Um, because it's out- outrageously expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other question is, why is the woman taking the backseat? Well, the woman's taking the backseat because she le- makes less money than the man does. And mm-hmm. so, you know, this brings up the question of how are we ever going to get to pay equity? Mm-hmm. And to really 
you know, to stamp out women, you know, dropping out of the workforce the minute there is some sort of crisis, I don't think you're going to see people doing that if the men and the women are actually having sort of an equal pay or if the woman is actually making more money, the woman's not going to drop out of the workforce, Mm -hmm. you know? And so again, I think this brings up a number of different issues, um, you know, pay equity being the the one that we haven't mentioned yet. Yeah. Yes. And I lived in Europe and I live in the United States now. I still cannot believe how the issue of childcare is just brutally regulated in this country. That's something that absolutely I hope that the new administration, and I've read some uh, steps and initiatives that have always existed, but never were able to kind of pass more forward, um, really, really go uh, forward with um, after January 20th. But when we speak about leadership, now let me ask you this. Of course, throughout the last few months, there have been different conversations. First about, do you think that women-led nations are doing better in the pandemic? And then it kind of changed because there have been uh, time passed and there have been some um, statistics that came out and research that came along as well. And still there are different explanations. So I have read a, a few ones and I was wondering what kind of makes the most sense to you. Well, of course, at this point, it does seem that countries with female heads of government absolutely had better results uh, in terms of death rates. Then we also know, for example, in the Financial Times, it was published that in Italy, the UK and US, it was above 780. In Spain, it was nearly 950. And then um, per million, I mean. And then the exception to the gender pattern was Belgium, for example, which had a female premier to uh, September 2020, and the death rate was still 1,360 per million. So then, and we also know that female-led countries tested more rigorously for coronavirus. So then one explanation was that as in Financial Times, and I'll give a different source and different explanation, we're saying perhaps a better way to frame the debate is not simply, quote unquote, to focus on whether male or female leaders have the best track records, but to ask whether there are qualities traditionally associated rightly or wrongly with women that are needed now from all our leaders. And here uh, they're saying lack of hubris, more accurately sufficient humility to listen to scientists and learn lessons from elsewhere. And another is penchant for empathy. So that was one explanation that I heard. And then another one, which is very interesting academic article, which got published by eight authors entitled Gender in the Time of COVID-19 Evaluating National Leadership and COVID-19 Fatalities, recently published on Plus Plus One uh, Journal. And what I thought was interesting is that the authors examined the proposition by analyzing COVID-19 related deaths globally across countries led by men and women. And they say that while they find some limited support for lower reported fatality rates in countries led by women, they're not statistically significant, they say. But what they do say is that countries' cultural values offer more substantive explanation for COVID-19 outcomes. For example, what does it mean? Well, They are saying that having a woman leader does not make a country fare better during the pandemic unless that country also has the cultural values that support female leadership in the first place. If they are likely to elect women to the highest executive office in the first place, and because those countries have policy landscapes and priorities that predispose them to manage risk better. As in, they say that leader gender does matter, but not necessarily in the ways that has been highlighted in the current discussion. I thought that was interesting and not necessarily, the, I mean, 
given that, the, as they say, given the important role of countries' cultural foundations, like if we think Norway, for example, or Iceland, etc., perhaps we should, the authors ask, uh, perhaps we should also be asking about long-term orientations, societal power disparities, and collectivist policies that influence countries' post-pandemic uh, future trajectories. Like, what does it mean? Uh, will then these nations that are led by women do better in the post-pandemic world, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, what, how does it seem to you? Is it the leadership? Is it something that female leaders have? Should we be thinking about those skills that they have? Or should we be thinking maybe about the cultural val values that existed in those countries already and that the pandemic just made... Uh, kind of uh, allowed or existed in that leadership is, existed in an environment that facilitated this better results? So I think that's super interesting. And I think that there definitely is truth in both. I think that women, I think by nature, are going to be different leaders, mm -hmm. um, especially in the world that we live in today. I think that we, it women have to work harder than men do to get into the positions mm -hmm. of, of leadership, whether they're going to be doctors, whether they're going to be the CEOs, whether they're going to be the president of a university. Um, they just have to, they, they just work harder. Um, there's much more scrutiny put on a woman. Um, they have more hoops that they, they have to go through. And so I think that they're much more rigorous. I think they pay attention to much more detail. And I think that they know how to actually deal with a lot of criticism because you don't get to be in those positions as a woman without being criticized heavily. And so I think, you know, right, you know, to begin with, I think, you know, I think women do have a different set of leadership skills. Mm -hmm. I think the second point that the study says is that societies that elect female leaders are also going to be the ones that are going to be much more open and amenable to it. And I think that's, a, that's true, right? We in the United States have not been able to do that. And even though I'm thrilled to no end that Kamala Harris will be the first female vice president of the United States, you know, I have my doubts that if she actually ran on her own to be president, whether she would, you know, she would even make it, you know, past, you know, past, you know, the primaries, um, because we don't have a tradition in the United States of doing that. Um, you know, so we see in countries like New Zealand, in Germany, in Taiwan, where you have strong leadership, that those countries have handled COVID very, very well. But then I also think about communities in Bangladesh, but then also in Kerala, in India, which are actually not friendly to women, that, you know, are very patriarchal. Um, but because you've had women leaders there, they have had a better success rate, you know, especially in Kerala, if you actually take a look at the health minister there, um, you know, in today in Modi's India, which has become a Hindu nationalist yeah. ethnostate, you know, she really has done a very excellent job in really making sure that the state, um, the India's southernmost state has actually dealt with COVID-19 far better than the other states within India. And so again, it goes back to, I think, you know, just women and the things that they have to actually struggle to get to the positions, I think actually makes them much more diligent. It makes them more rigorous and it makes them pay attention to details, you know, trying to figure out logistics, trying to think about communities and how they're connected together. You know, again, because women are 
unduly criticized and questioned, I think that they find the answers to those things in a much more savvy and a more consistent way than men do. Yeah. And now that we mentioned Kamala Harris, let's, if we speak uh, to American context, US context, let's mention Stacey Abrams, of course. Uh, and uh, let's mention to our listeners that there will be a record number of women who will serve in state houses in 2021 in the United States, and that President elect Joe Biden has filled out some top positions, either in economics and communication teams, enlisting mostly women. So that's something that I'm absolutely for. And one thing that I do also want to reiterate, as you mentioned, while we normalize and definitely have to I mean, normalize, hopefully, this woman's leadership, that what you mentioned is that let's not forget how much abuse and threats online and offline, uh, you know, and I know this because I wrote both from Bosnia to worldwide context as well, women face online, and that that's a different topic about now, and we don't even have to get into it, what social media's responsibility or how are they dealing with that, or why are they not dealing enough with it. But that said, one thing and another topic that kind of is related and I personally really care about we mentioned a little bit about mental health I did want to ask you about your personal experience I mean professionally obviously because you interact uh, with so many women um, in positions that require so much and uh, mid-December so a month ago I guess there was a report again by KFF Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a nonprofit working on health policy analysis. And they published the research that shows that COVID-19 is disproportionately harming women's mental health as well. And um, I quote, they say the pandemic has really taken a toll on everybody, but women start off with more concerns and worries. And so when you add in a pandemic, you really see the rise. About 57% of women said their mental health had been negatively affected compared to 44% of men. The coronavirus crisis has exacerbated the gender gap when it comes to mental health conditions, particularly anxiety and depression. And again, I think that this is just U.S. context. Let's then imagine, of course, and I'm sure that this has happened globally, and I've had guests as well who spoke about domestic violence explosion in Latin America, where they work on, but I know elsewhere as well. So What's your experience about this? And I really think this is important. And I always want to reiterate it more about the importance of talking about mental health, whether we talk about women who are professionals in government, how it is neglected, uh, how this really needs to be taken seriously and worked on both for government public servants, but within companies as well. Um, This is not a cheesy, phony thing where, you know, when we talk about self-compassion, compassion towards others, these are also empirically proven things. But what is your experience in terms of how little is maybe talked about mental health in these circles where you have worked and where you are active? And then broadly as well, if you'd like to add, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, I think it doesn't surprise me that, you know, women are struggling in this period Mm -hmm. of COVID. Um, You know, again, society has, you know, created these norms um, and these beliefs that women need to be strong and, you know, we need to, you know, we need to go show up and, you know, and, and, you know, plow through and be resilient and, and do all of these things. And I think, you know, the messages that we get is, you know, we need to be successful, we need to work hard. Um, But we don't talk about, well, okay, when we do that, we also need the self-care, 
We need to actually think about our well-being, which includes mental health, um, because getting to those things is really hard. Um, and I think a lot of women, you know, struggle with imposter syndrome and they struggle with a lot of self-doubt. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. They're human. And, you know, we, what we need to really do is send the message that strong women are actually the ones that go out there and seek the mental health um, assistance. And to say that if you really actually want to be successful, you need to say like, hey, I'm having a really hard time. Um, I need help or I need a timeout or, or whatever it is, because it makes a difference. You know, we, we as a society open our arms up to men who show their emotions and who cry and who break down and who can be vulnerable. We need to do the same with women too. You know, we've made crying such a crime for women that women are afraid to do it and they swallow their emotions and they don't want to show and they don't want to show that they can be vulnerable. And it's toxic that we do that. You know, on the one hand, we applaud men when they do it, but then we chastise and we punish women when they, when they do the same thing. And it has to be consistent. We need to applaud people who are going out there and saying, I need help. I'm hurting. I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. You know, listen to me. Absolutely. I agree with all of that. And I try to bring more awareness about mental health importance through my work and the podcast as well. And I do want to say for the men who are listening to this podcast, I really truly believe that is valid for you too, that men need to cry more in the sense that now it's going to, the conversation is going to take us to toxic masculinity, et cetera. But I believe that just talks about mental health and the stigma, and let alone like, again, here we're focused on US context, but elsewhere as well. Oh my goodness. I and mean, when we mention mental health, that is just you know, and I know from Bosnian context, for example, PTSD and so many different regions with so many different kinds of traumas that really require talking about it both in a professional way, but in a compassionate way to be able to allow people to open up. And now so many things come to my mind, not just, you know, victims of sexual violence as just an example, both men and women, but just generally PTSD and everything that it has created for so many folks around the globe. I'll bite in a different manner and, you know, quantity, but it's okay to not be okay is what I always want to emphasize because a lot of, we see a lot of harm uh, and sometimes irreparable harm and sometimes things that happen that are just, that are, it's too late to, to do anything about it. So thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. And we did speak a little bit economy, but I do want to talk considering, of course, you're an author as well. I want to hear your thoughts about entrepreneurship. Your book was published, as I said, in 2015, and you were talking about one of the main ideas was that, you know, why the next Steve Jobs is just is likely to come from Lagos, Acapulco, Lahore, Mumbai, as from Silicon Valley. So tell our listeners and viewers, what are your thoughts now, a few years later, and after the 2020 and everything that has happened across the globe, about the future of entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, entrepreneurship has existed the world over since the beginning of time. Um, you know, Silicon Valley may think that it is the capital of entrepreneurship, but um, that is absolutely not true. Um, entrepreneurs exist, you know, in the places that you talked about in Cairo and Lagos and Istanbul and Sarajevo, um, in, uh, you know, in Tokyo and all, you know, all, you know, all around the globe. Um, and 
actually what's interesting is when I actually set out to do the book, what I actually realized is more people are more entrepreneurial outside of the United States than they are here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they are is because most people outside of the United States have to create their own jobs. There aren't jobs, there aren't, you know, educational opportunities. And so people, whether it's in Nigeria, Pakistan, Mexico, Russia, India, or China, they're creating their own livelihoods. Mm-hmm. But now what we're seeing is they're taking these livelihoods that they've started and they're taking it to the next level. So they're making it innovative, they're attracting global capital, they're taking it to scale. Mm -hmm. And so the things that people all over the world have been doing, again, since the the dawn of time, Mm -hmm. they have just now have actually been able to ride the wave of globalization Mm -hmm. and start doing it on the scale that Americans have been doing for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, I'm still very bullish that the next Steve Jobs will come from outside of the United States. And primarily because entrepreneurship at the, at its heart is about solving a problem. It is not about creating a tech app that is going to, you know, like whether it's TikTok or WhatsApp or Instagram, where people are socializing, the really, truly great entrepreneurs are the ones that are creating solutions for our societies and you know what, guess what? Most of those problems around the world are outside of the United States. And so when you take a look at mobile money, it was the Africans that pioneered that, not the Americans. You know, and again, you know, the Chinese are way ahead of Americans on artificial intelligence. Um, And so I look at communities, particularly in the Middle East, in Turkey, a country that both of us know Mm -hmm. quite well. And I am so impressed with the ideas and innovations that the communities that are they're coming up with and they are coming up with these ideas not because they're interested in making billions of dollars because they're addressing they're addressing issues and problems that they have at home mm-hmm. yeah and if we just think how much conversations have changed about the very future of work in terms of remote work and kind of the things that we need and how the digital technology and that literally, I mean, how the acceleration of digital revolution will continue to impact both the interactions and the situation within the countries. I think that what you said absolutely rings a bell in terms of the trends that I have seen described as as well. So that said, now that it's January 11th, I guess, and we're past the January 1st and New Year's resolution, I, I want to ask you about that. I had no idea because I don't usually make New Year's resolutions in that kind of determined way. I just if it's like mid of June and I realize I need to change something, I hopefully start working on it. But apparently, did you know that only 8% of New Year's resolutions survive until the end of January? Yeah. That's, that's, that makes- yeah oh my God, I had no clue about that. But apparently the biggest reason, and uh, I want to ask you is that changing a particular behavior for what I read is difficult if we have 
establish routines. So what I read uh, or heard is that there is this idea of tiny habits, as is the name of the book uh, authored by BJ Fogg, who is at Stanford University. And he's saying we don't need determination to change behavior. What we need instead are habits. And he's saying uh, basically that the way to build a habit is making it easy and starting small. And a good way to start is by doing as little as possible. So as an advice to uh, to the listeners or viewers who might be you know uh, beating themselves up about things not working out first, it's important to also not beat ourselves up even about the change we want to make. But I want to ask you, did you, what are, what are the plans or did you make any New Year's resolutions as I try to kind of unfortunately bring this conversation that's been so much fun um, towards the end as well, bring it to lighter topics that are important nevertheless? Um, I think like you, I, you know, if I think something needs to change, I just change it. I don't think like I'm going to do that starting right. the new year. Um, I think like most people, I try to think you know, I've indulged too much over the holidays, um, you know, a little too much sugar, a little too much cheese, <laughs> a little too much wine, um, yeah. you know, so definitely scaling back on those things and trying to eat a lot lighter. Um, but I think in general, I think it's always good to kind of, you know, whether it's January 1st, or whether it's March 1st, or whether it's October 1st, kind of, you know, you know, making a pact and saying, you know, like, what have I accomplished? And what am I going to, you know, set out to do um, in the days ahead? And can I do that, you know, um, consciously and, you know, by being present and, you know, by thinking about, you know, whether it's my family, my friends or the people in my community, um, you know, and just trying to, I think just trying to be more intentional about the things um, that I do. Um, I'm not, I'm not perfect at it. Um, but I definitely do try. So I think with the turning of every, of every, uh, calendar, uh, month, um, I try to, I, I try to kind of think like, you know, what have I accomplished and what do I want to do in the month ahead? Yeah. And so listeners, a good way to start, remember, is doing as little as possible, whatever it is that you're setting up on doing. And as you said, it's totally a roller coaster. Oh, one day it's, uh, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I'm such on, on such a good track. Tomorrow, I feel like everything is falling apart. But I think that when you say both intentionality and also consciousness of these things and catching yourself, getting into that kind of vortex of bad thoughts, at least for me, I've been working on that. Um, mindfulness, etc., is something that I truly have seen the benefits of it, even though I doubt it when I started about the whole mindfulness challenge and learning more about it. I do recommend it to everybody who is willing to explore. Anyway, now that we're getting towards the end of the conversation, so sadly, but I'm very much aware of Elmira's time, of course. My aim at the end of each episode is kind of to make the guests even more approachable and to offer listeners the opportunity to hear them on a slightly more personal level. So I ask questions which are fun, but some people give very serious answers as well. All is allowed. Uh, it, I can think kind of reflects the personality of my guests as well and everything is accepted and of course appreciated. So the first question is, once the current emergency is over, and I still use the word, word purposely emergency in terms of the global pandemic, any Temporary awareness might maybe disappear immediately, but what would you not want to forget from lockdowns or the from pandemic era, um, Elmira? Oh, what do I not want to forget? Yeah. Um, because usually it's like, oh, I want to forget this, but I'm like, what would you not want to forget? Um, I don't want to forget how nice it is to actually go to bed early and wake up, you know, <laughs> feeling very refreshed. I mean, that's <gasps> so awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um you know, I go to bed early now and I get like a full like eight hours of sleep and I wake up and, 
my skin looks good <laughs> and I feel well rested. Like it matters, right? And I don't need coffee. Um, so I don't want to forget that. So I, that's something I'm definitely going to keep. It's like go to bed early. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think for me, that's the one thing, that's the one lesson I'm going to try to keep in my, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in my habits. Mm-hmm. Second question, which of your personality traits has been the most useful? Not the best trait, but the most useful. Oh, definitely my aversion to going out and like being an introvert. Mm. Um, that has been absolutely indispensable during the pandemic. You know, everybody's talking about how they're going crazy. And I'm just like, I'm having a great time. <laughs> really? People are going crazy? Really? <laughs> I'm, oh my I'm reading my books. Uh-huh. I'm watching movies. I'm by myself. I'm not, you know, I'm not taking part in like mindless conversation. I'm not at a cocktail party in uncomfortable shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having a great time. Yeah. Now, tied to that, when you have 30 minutes of free time, but legit free time, what do you like to do and how do you pass that time? Oh, I think I just like being on my couch and watching um, the Food Network. Um, oh. Yeah. Okay. I just love, like, my favorite show is Chopped. And so, you know, just like lying on the couch and watching Chopped, you know, I'm not a real big cooker, but. You know, I'm not, I don't spend time in the kitchen, but I love that show. Yeah, I have not heard of Chopped, but I really have to say that throughout the pandemic, but in general as well, one of the my favorite kind of shows were Chef's Table and Netflix. And now they have these things on street food, Asia or Latin America. And because I love to travel and that allows me kind of the window to see different places around the world and hear stories about chefs. Uh, I, I have really appreciated that. And my sisters watch the great baking British show or something. Oh, I love that show. Everybody's talking about that. I have oh, not delved into that, but <laughs> she raves about it all the time. It's so, so good. Yeah. I have to check into that. Uh, So next fourth question, and we have one more after that. What skill or craft would you like to get better at? Oh, I started running again this past year. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's harder when you're older. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Well, Um, remember, take small steps, like, you know, tidy habits. Believe me, they're small steps. (laughs) Trust me, they're very small steps. Um, so I want to get better at that. And I have, I bought a, I bought a bunch of books about like, mm-hmm. you know, the complete guide to runners mm-hmm. and nutrition for runners and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and doing all of that. So, um, I want to, that's one thing I want to get better at. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be better at mindfulness. I'm not very good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I get distracted too easily. And mm-hmm. so I definitely want to practice, you know, you know, taking time out and, and, and to be, to be mindful. Um, and so those are the two things I think I would like to get better at. Yeah. And then um, last question, are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you? Oh, my, all my friends are opposite to me. Hmm. That's my friends so are good. very extroverted. They're very like, let's go have dinner. Let's go mm-hmm. for a walk. Let's, <laughs> you know, um, very social. Um, my friends are like completely my opposite, um, which is, I, you know, and I think maybe that's why we're all friends. Cause I think we all bring, mm-hmm. you know, bring something different to the table. Um, mm-hmm. but I like it that way. I have a great group of friends and, and we're all different in our own ways, but, um, yeah, m- my friends are definitely, definitely different than I am. Mm-hmm. 
Well, on that note, and with hopes that, you know, we will be able to also recover some friendships that maybe in the last year have gotten kind of astray because of the lack of socializing uh, opportunities as well. Um, And kind of the reminder how friendship really matters, as we have also now seen throughout the pandemic, precisely because we were deprived of these opportunities. Honestly, I really miss them. I haven't seen many of people I really care about who live close by precisely because I was scared and I've been scared for my health and not getting those who live with me uh, sick as well. I hope that in the new year, we get the opportunities to get to see each other more in person, uh, that we get to finally have the lunch, inshallah, if not now, then very soon that uh, we 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 hope for uh, i want to thank you so much for all the amazing insights on so many topics that we try to cover and of course that we could have talked so much more about i did want to ask you if there is any message at the end that you would like to share with our listeners and viewers at the end of our uh, conversation today i think the one advice that i you know i cuz i teach and i you know i'm interacting with students a lot and they always ask me you know what like one bit of advice um, do you have for me? And I always say, you know, it's, it's progress, not perfection. Um, just make sure that you're continuing to be better than you were, um, today or yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. and not, you're not trying to be perfect because you will never be perfect. Mm-hmm. On that note, that's both hopeful and optimistic and mindful. I want to, again, thank you, Elmira, for, uh, being with us today. And I want to remind our listeners and viewers hold tight to those you love and stay well it's january 11th it's 2021 let's be hopeful by working for what we want to uh, see 